undersea cities, and various secret moon bases. It's the Smooth Thrills Radio Hour, Series 4, and I'm your host, Jason Rutledge. In this episode, we're taking a look at a movie from two of the smoothest thrillers of the last hundred years, director Otto Preminger and Frank Sinatra. It is, of course, The Man with the Golden Arm. It's a fun ride through jazz music, battling through addiction, and the fight against the production code that ruled Hollywood for way too long. It's probably the most socially important movie we've discussed since, uh, I don't know, Better Off Dead maybe? We think you'll love it. We certainly had a great time making it. So, on with the show. But first, a quick message. You know, putting together a show like this can be a lot of work, everyone. But when it all seems too much, and I find myself wondering, just like Jennifer Love Hewitt, how do I deal? I just remember the pep talk my friend Louie gave me once. Take me to court. Please, Louie, you gotta make it stop. I'll take care of you. Just work a few hours. I gotta get some sleep. I gotta be fresh tomorrow. Just work a few hours. Do us a favor. I'll guarantee you'll feel like a week in the country. Please, Louie, please, now. Drop dead. <laughs> Not worth it to him, I guess. I don't know. Well, you remember how well it was when Anchor Bay uh, funded these. They didn't Anchor sell a Bay single had, DVD. They had that gigantic booth. I think it was like eight tables long with the giant Anchor oh, wow. Bay backdrop and everything. And they were selling they were selling plushies of the Sharktopus or whatever it was. And but I you guess couldn't nobody buy a DVD anything. or a Blu-ray from them to save your life. It was <laughs> all here's you know promotional stuff you can look at. Mm-hmm. But that's it. Did yeah. Mondo have any cool exclusives? Mondo wasn't, Mondo wasn't there. even there. Oh, wow. Maybe I would have been okay financially then. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, shall we get started? We're starting this in 1915. The case of Mutual Film Corporation versus Industrial Commission of Ohio had just reached the Supreme Court of the United States. Now, Mutual Film Corp. had argued that the Ohio Board of Censors, which reviewed and approved and actively censored all the films shown in the state, was stopping them from showing their movies, at least as intended in Ohio, violating their right to free speech. The Supreme Court, of course, ruled 9-0 to zero against Mutual Film. Justice McKenna, writing for the majority of the court, said, I won't try to do an impression here, we'll just go with it. The exhibition of moving pictures is a business, pure and simple, originated and conducted for profit, not to be regarded nor intended to be regarded by the Ohio Constitution, we think, as part of the press of the country or as organs of public opinion. Movies, he continued, may be used for evil. We cannot regard the censorship of movies as beyond the power of government. And with that, dear listeners... Movies no longer had free speech protections under the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. States could censor them however they pleased. This ruling started a battle between filmmakers and censors that went on for decades, with the filmmakers looking for clever workarounds of the rules and the censors continuously rewriting the guidelines of good and evil to impose their own sense of morality. 
One of the movies that was an absolute cannonball fired into the side of the good ship sensor is the movie we're discussing in this episode, The Man with the Golden Arm. Hello again, welcome everyone to the Smooth Thrills Radio Hour, Nathan, Katie. What'd you think, Man with the Golden Arm? What kind of impression did it make on you? I know, Katie, this is probably the first time you've seen it. Mm-hmm. It's not one of those yeah. I revisit often, but it's worth doing. Nathan, I'm sure you've seen this one a few times. Yeah, it's it's comfort food for me. Where did you land on this one? I can see why. It's definitely a good movie. I really liked it. It wasn't like normally when you give me titles and I don't know what they are, I don't read on them. Mm-hmm. I just watch them because I feel like I can then give it a more surprised reaction to it because this is not at all what I thought mm-hmm. it was going to be. It also sounds like a um a Bond movie title, not going to lie. It's pretty close. <laughs> the Man with the Golden Arm. And she just um, watched Live and Let Die before it and was completely <laughs> confused. I uh not at all what I was expecting, but I actually really, really enjoyed it. Nice. What were you expecting? I don't know. I mean, honestly, with that title, I just kept thinking Bond movie. <laughs> like, And I know it wasn't a Bond movie, mm-hmm. but with a title like that, it doesn't really, um, I don't know. I wasn't expecting a movie about an addict. I was not expecting slight mobster vibes. Like it just, it definitely wasn't at all. There's what? mobsters. They're they're it pretty low being... level, amateurish sort of mobsters, yeah. though. They'd... Well, that's why I said vibe more than yeah. like because it's definitely not mm-hmm. a mob movie, but it has that feel to it. Local hoodlums. Well, yeah. This gives you a lot. This movie yeah. gives you a lot of things that were almost forbidden in the world of movies. You got lots of drinking, crime, gambling, and of course the drug use, which was definitely forbidden. Mm-hmm. Uh, the production code at the time, this would have been from, say, 46 to 51. The The section of the production code was states that illegal drug traffic must not be portrayed in such a way as to stimulate curiosity concerning the use of or traffic in such drugs, nor shall scenes be approved which show the illegal use of drugs or their effect in detail, which Man with the Golden Arm definitely does. <laughs> It's just interesting to me how this film is like bending the rules on what can be shown in comparison to things we watch Mm -hmm. now or even 10, 20 years ago. It's just interesting because honestly, it's not an overly graphic film with the depictions of drug use or anything like that, but it is quote unquote groundbreaking for lack of a better term because of where it is in film right. history, if well, that should, makes sense. We should give yeah. a little bit of background if you're not familiar with how the production code worked and how it came to pass. You had seven states that had state censorship boards. It was uh, Chicago, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Maryland, Kansas, New York, and Virginia. Maryland didn't give theirs up until 1981, by the way. Not surprised. What Hollywood had to deal with was all of these different standards for what they could put into theaters. They had to make different cuts for every state, basically, depending on what what the mood was at the time. So, you know, around 1922, they recruited a guy named William Hayes to head what was going to be the all-new Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America, the MPPDA, to defend the industry against attacks from the censors and try, try to calm things down and form an armistice, if you will. By 1930, the MPPDA under... William Hayes, who was a Presbyterian, by the way, 
agrees to abide by this thing called the Production Code, which was written by Martin Quigley, who is a Catholic, and Father Daniel Lord, who is a Jesuit. Those are the forces that came together to make this code. 1934, they established the Production Code Administration and put an Irish Catholic, very notable Irish Catholic named Joseph I. Breen in charge. This was a supposedly completely voluntary system wherein studios would submit scripts to the Production Code Administration. Breen would give his personal okay and a certificate of approval to every movie that was released. So effectively, this one guy was in charge of anything you saw. He was in charge of the production code office, I think almost until his death in 1965. But his his authority was so total that 1936, Liberty Magazine wrote an article about him saying that he, quote, had more influence in standardizing world thinking than Mussolini, Hitler, or Stalin. So yay. But this was the guy you're up against, and this was the guy that Otto Preminger went up against when he made this movie. Preminger was a button pusher. He made it his mission in life to twerk off the censors and get his way and push this envelope wider and wider on what you could do. That's where we stand when Man with the Golden Arm comes out. And there are rules about drug use in movies changed after this movie was released. Remember I said this, this code got updated whenever a successful movie would come out that flaunted the code. It would get updated to allow for this thing to happen that previously was a no-no. You said said 46, it was revised. Is that a result of Billy Wilder's The Lost Weekend? Yes. Lost Weekend was easily, I think, one of the first big movies to tackle the subject of alcoholism straight on the way it did. It had a huge influence on revamping the code. Really, the use of alcohol was never expressly forbidden. What they tried to say was, you shouldn't put it in the movie unless you need to to make a character work. So it's kind of a rule and kind of not a rule at the same time. But you definitely weren't supposed to depict it as something fun to do. Enjoyable (laughs) or positive, yeah. Because the goal was to not ensure people to be doing it. They must have loved Laurel and Hardy with Pilato then. (laughs) Well, it makes sense. So they make that their own fake liquor. Yeah. Well, it makes sense with older films where your your lushes are typically the people who are frowned mm. upon and things like that. Like knowing this code now makes sense for how certain things were portrayed and written and depicted because they're not going. I mean, the thinner man. What year did that the come? The thin out? man came out about two months before the production code office was established in 1934. Because if you look at his character, he is definitely a lush, but he was in a more positive light mm-hmm. instead right. of maybe more negatively. Yeah, definitely gives you something to think about when viewing. Yeah, films. from the rule according to the code from, say, March 51 to December 56, which encompasses the period when Man with the Golden Arm came out, use of liquor in American life when not required by the plot will not be shown. So, you know, it's, it's just not a rule. It really, it, they gave up. And the code was rewritten. There's a lot of gray areas, too. Sure. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. Previously, the code was drug traffic must never be presented. And then this movie comes out and you got a shit ton of rewrites after that in 56 saying, OK, let's do it this way. Now, drug addiction uh, must not be shown if the portrayal tends to encourage, stimulate or justify the use of the drugs uh, stresses visually or by dialogue, their temporary effects, 
suggests the drug habit may quickly or easily be broken, or shows details of drug procurement and the taking of drugs in any manner, or emphasizes the profits of drug traffic. So they kind of gave themselves a lot of wiggle room after that. It's like, okay, you can do it in a movie, but only if it doesn't do this. And that's what they had been doing with the code for decades, was someone would, someone would make a movie, people loved it, and they had to rewrite it. Their co- they had to rewrite the code to make room for that. And it just gradually just got taken down and taken <laughs> just, down until it, the code didn't necessarily yeah. die. Until you can pretty much show anything. Oh, yeah. the, the code didn't necessarily have a, a death date, like they didn't dig a hole in the ground and throw the papers in there and cover it up in some ceremony. It just became irrelevant. Just death by a thousand cuts. Well, did when the rating system when the rating system happened, did that kind of shift the balance on all of that other the stuff? The rating system was established in nineteen sixty eight when Jack Valeni took over what was now right. called the MPAA and not the MPPD or whatever it was. Yeah. But did that other stuff kind of go by it the stopped. wayside it once just died. ratings they, were the production code administration okay. office because it was irrelevant. Yeah. Right. Well, no, because he said that the one thing didn't go away in Maryland until eighty one. That was the state board. That was the state censorship board. Yeah, didn't go away till yeah, then. Yeah, but so there were still yeah. some vestiges of this kind of censorship going on. It was just getting more and more difficult to enforce, and nobody was really paying attention to it as much. I mean, previously, if you were in Ohio and you showed a movie that was not code approved, you could go to jail as a, as an exhibitor. Well, yeah. I mean, if you look at um. He, he didn't face jail time, but there were uh, in 2019 when the house that Jack mm-hmm. built came out, there was a one night only event where they showed the unrated version of it. And a lot of theaters ended up having to pay heavy fines for that. Hmm. So, I mean, it's still, still a thing yeah. to an extent goes on now. Yeah. I mean, if you want to cite recent experiences, too, is like. When Adam Green had like an exclusive deal with AMC to show the unrated version of Hatchet 2, that lasted half a weekend, I think. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they pulled it. And this was like AMC approving and they're exhibiting yeah. this thing exclusively. But then they just backed out of it. Too much controversy. Mm. I guess they just don't want the heat. Yeah. But, well, because the heat's going to be bad publicity. That word almost didn't come out, but you know what yeah. I mean. Yeah, like, but it, yeah, I don't understand in that context why it matters, though, because... Well, here's another example. It's not a movie theater thing, but when I used to work at Hot Topic in Maryland, we weren't allowed to put the Slipknot Halloween masks in the front window because the amount of people who would write to corporate about how it offended wow. them. Mm. Wow. So, I mean, you're going to have that level of people who are going to bitch and mechanical types. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And unfortunately, they're the louder voices. The Maryland Board of Censors was the last one to go away, and that was in 1981. Most everyone else gave up gave up Maryland on it in the garbage. 1960s. Even Pennsylvania even stopped That's why when you said it was yeah. 81, I was not surprised. Maryland. Mm-hmm. I would have guessed Utah, <laughs> but they never established a board. I don't know what, why they didn't. Well, the interesting thing about the movie is that never at any point do they say what drug he's addicted to. No, they we don't. Do assume it may be heroin. Yeah. I assumed heroin because of the whole shooting up that process. Event. Which you could shoot up um, yeah. morphine oh, similarly, true. which is what is in the mm-hmm. novel. But I don't think you go directly. In, I don't know. I'm no expert, but I don't think you go directly into a vein with morphine. 
I'm not that I've ever seen before, but I've also yeah. never done it, so <laughs> I can't. Like... So you can you, you could skirt that issue and just say that it's all merely implied that he's addicted to something we don't know what mm-hmm. it is. Doesn't seem to matter the whole cold turkey sequence. No, like in the end, it, it really doesn't matter. And that what went it is. really quickly, and I feel like for heroin, it's not that quick of a turnaround. No, because I just think of uh, train spotting. Hmm. <laughs> specifically <laughs> well we presume he's all good by the end of it but we don't know that could have just been a momentary oh he's he's never going to yeah. be good experienced he's never going to be good because yeah. he break he yeah. breaks the first rule he gets it clean he gets out of jail and goes right back in with the same crowd that and, yeah. and these we right. well and there is that whole thing in aa that once mm-hmm. you're an addict you're always an addict you may be recovered from it but you're still an addict because at any point you could fall off again. And he's he's surrounded by parasitic types. Mm-hmm. I mean, oh, aside from maybe the Kim Novak character, who he's parasitic toward, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's no really redeemable characters in this. And you want to root for Frankie Machine, but he's putting himself in the situation. Right. Certainly Zosh is a hot mess. I hate, yeah. I hate her. I did think her being able to stand was going to be more insidious mm. than it was which it's still pretty damn insidious but i was thinking it was going to be more of her being in like cahoots with the quote-unquote mob guys but no she just was desperate to keep him tethered so no i was just saying like for it's uh he essentially that's zosh is his cross to bear mm-hmm. until you know, as the movie goes along, you learn, oh, she's just another monkey on his back is what it is. And then when yeah. you find the twist, she really has been exploiting him mm-hmm. this entire time. And she actually, in a way, kind of reminded me of Shelley Winter's character in A Place in the Sun. Oh, okay. Where you have this negative home influence to Montgomery Cliff's character. Like, she's just doom and gloom all the time, and he wants to live his life, and... Granted, this is a little bit different hmm. because he is married to her and he is responsible for the car wreck that mm-hmm. purportedly put her in this position. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a little bit different, but it just reminds me of, you know, the fantasy element of him with Kim Novak and wanting to be a drummer and getting away from all of this. Yeah. You know, he never will if he continues to go back home to j- there's a couple of things here. First, I thought it was really funny that Zosh keeps a scrapbook of fatal accidents, just like Hannibal Lecter keeps his scrapbook of church disasters, implying possibly that she didn't die. So why is it fatal? That Zosh may be a serial killer. I don't know. That could be. <laughs> I just her character was. I also found it absolutely fascinating just, that Frankie thinks that joining a band is going to keep him away from drugs. Like that just seems a little bit counterintuitive to me. Could be wrong. Well, I think it was more the stability of a job that wasn't yeah. going to necessarily be mm. toxic. Be that's where the yeah. that's where yeah. the golden arm has three meanings. It's either the arm he shoots up with, the arm he drums with, or the arm he deals with. Right. That's what's so great about that title. Mm. Yeah. I was just sad it wasn't an actual golden arm. They only arm. directly refer to it as as his golden arm when he's dealing poker. That's the only time they say it in the movie, but yeah. Well, no, because yeah. doesn't he also mention it when he was talking about learning drumming in jail? Maybe? I don't Oh, he does. Yes, yeah, he does. Mm-hmm. That's right. I'll bring that up. When he first gets it, out, mm-hmm. he talks about how he took that Arnold's time. Thing about it, yep. yeah. He says the guy that was training him says, I got a golden Speaking arm. of Sparrow, he's probably the only character that isn't a complete parasite to Frankie. 
his heart's in the right place. I thought it was funny that yeah. when the guy wanted to hit him, he made him take his glasses off. Yeah, that is a good moment. Nobody in the movie ever really gets totally mad at Sparrow. I like Sparrow and I really liked Molly. Because for everything that Molly was, to an extent, being an enabler, she wasn't as bad as the majority of the other people in his life. Mm. Right. So. And isn't it interesting, and I know time-wise it doesn't make any sense, but that her name is Molly? Which is also a drug. Coincidence, yeah. I think. I mean, in a way, you could say that he's pining for the ecstasy of being with her. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because when, when uh, Zosh or whatever she's called is talking to her about how he's never going to be able to leave because as long as he thinks that I can't walk, then or as long as I'm like this, he's going to always be here. Mm-hmm. Knowing full well he doesn't want to be and that the two of them have whatever they have going on. I'm sure she thinks it's more physical maybe than it actually is or what we're shown. I don't know how in-depth it goes into the book. But I actually haven't read the book. I don't know. For once, I didn't read the book on this one. I think it has a much bleaker ending than the movie does. Oh, I do love bleak. It's so funny because I'm familiar with this mm-hmm. cover. I had seen this cover oh, before. So not nice. realizing what it was because I'm pretty, I think it's on Criterion. So, yeah, Saul Bass was associated with Preminger quite a bit, um, also with Hitchcock. So, if you're familiar with the openings. Mm-hmm credits to north Psycho, by northwest i think he did also yep that was the best i one, think so probably, yeah did it was yeah. saul bass on uh the moon is blue i don't know i don't know that was a couple years a couple before, years before yeah moon is blue obviously an anatomy of a murder yeah. years later and or and of course Skidoo. bunny lake is missing one of my personal so, favorites I'm kidding. golden arm bunny is lake not is on criterion but I can definitely, because it has the two covers for the man with the golden arm and anatomy of a murder next to each other. Mm-hmm. And you can definitely see the the, mm-hmm. the similarities there. Yeah, anatomy is a criterion. Yeah, I knew that one was. Yeah. By the way, Preminger's movie, The Moon is Blue, was the first Hollywood motion picture to use the word virgin, believe it or not. Huh. And this was... Hmm. And what year was it? 1951 or something like that. 53 it goes like 53 yeah and that's the one that he shot simultaneously in german and english with different casts on the same sets how in the hell do you pull something like that off well they did that with i mean they used to do that back in the 30s where they would do spanish versions Mm -hmm. like you Mm -hmm. know the spanish version of dracula was shot on the same set oh that's right as the todd browning film but also laurel and hardy did a lot of short subjects in Spanish and they phonetically did their performances and it's very strange, but it was a thing. What if when, when they do, you know, when you watch an Italian film and you have the really bad dubs and you can't always tell which language they're filmed in specifically, are there double recordings of those or is it just a shitty dub? Well, the dub itself is what you're asking? Well, no, because, because there could be like, multiple dubs of something, mm. yes. Well, I'm talking about, like, you can either watch it in Italian or you can watch it in English, but you can't really yeah. tell what it was originally done in because the mouths don't line up with either. Right. Are they well, filmed some... both ways, or is it just... Well, a lot of the Italian films are shot without sound. 
for the sake of dubbing it yeah, international. They won't even bother. And then also, they won't even bother. A lot yeah. of those, yeah, a lot of those, um, because that's the thing when they're setting up shots, they're talking nonstop. They don't care if there's action being shot. They may be yeah. building a set right next to you talking. at the same time that they're shooting something. So then I'm going to bother it's recording. It's just sound. interesting because, like, now that makes sense as to why the mouth doesn't line up with either the Italian also, or the English. Yeah, a lot of those productions are, you know, you have international casts where your lead may be mm-hmm. an American. Right. Or British. Is, and mm-hmm. everybody else is co-financing a lot of Spanish mm-hmm. and Italian productions, a lot of Spanish and German productions. So you may have just a mix of the crews and the actual cast. Incidentally, speaking of international productions, the production code also had rules that applied to movies that would be exhibited in other countries, not just the United States. There were certain words that were prohibited from being used because it might offend a foreign audience. Like from 39 till about the mid-40s, you could not use the word bum, bloody, sissy, gigolo, punk, sex appeal, sex life shag, or shyster if you intended to show your film in England. But we still have that now with our big blockbusters. You could not use several... uh, Let's call them racial slurs, uh, which is more or less understandable. But ahead, was, no, I'll, I'll skip that part. You could. You're gonna read the. You're not gonna read the list. Uh, from 40s through 1956, you were prohibited from using the phrases "alley cat," "broad," "chippy," "cripes," "fanny," "fairy," "finger." Cripes. Yeah, <laughs> I couldn't figure that one fanny out. Fanny finger, uh, as in the finger. Fanny. Couldn't do that. Oh, did you say yep. fanny? Could not say pansy, slut, fanny SOB, son of a tart, do only toilet some... gags, tomcat. Could not do it. They specifically forbid any traveling salesman and farmer's daughter jokes. It, it The list is just ex- incredibly weird. And of course, it was changing year by hmm. year. But that is still, that still goes on today to some extent. Like when Left 4 Dead 2 came out for um, PC mm-hmm. and Xbox, the cover was a zombie hand yep. like this. And well, with the two, and it had to be changed for Australia because it was not deemed you know, acceptable. Some of that has there. to do with the levels of violence, also, and what kind of certificate you're going to get. Mm-hmm. I think Winnie the Pooh, also the Winnie the Pooh poster, couldn't be uh, displayed in China because he doesn't have pants on or something like that. It was some <laughs> weird controversy. Pants that poo. Pants that. Poo. Pants that poo. That's a movie right there. On top of all of this, guys like Preminger and the Hollywood system and all of America was held hostage. Well, let's say I'll start again. Guys like Preminger were also subject to the National League of Decency, also known as the Catholic Legion of Decency, which is founded in 1934. They didn't. It wasn't really a censorship board in any way, but they had their own separate rating systems to let all the good Catholics know what movies they could watch and which ones they shouldn't watch. It was like an ABC rating system. A being perfectly acceptable on down to C, which was forbidden. The bonkers nature of this rating system meant that The Exorcist got an A rating as perfectly acceptable, but something like Man with a Golden Arm would get the forbidden rating for being completely unacceptable, if that makes any sense. Well, The Exorcist doesn't have drugs in it. I suppose. (laughs) She does go to the doctor. Yeah, there are doctors. There may have been drugs. <laughs> but that's why it's so weird. Like, I look at um, specifically Americans' views on things where we will throw 
extreme mm-hmm. violence in everything the news anything and everything but sex is like so taboo and it's like your your child can be exposed to the weirdest shit but don't ever mention like nudity or sex or anything and it's it's just odd how things are perceived here versus other areas Those are probably as well. the only two things they didn't do in man with a golden arm was was the sex and violence although they did have a the fight that occurs after the poker game is exposed for being a fraud that's as close as it got yeah well they're skirting a lot of that mm-hmm. probably to get away with the rest of the it, main yeah. story you know what i mean like i mean you they're really taking, could go yeah. yeah like he could have brutally been beaten after that particular game in question and uh you know and then also darren mcgavin's demise spoiler alert um that could have been in greater Mm -hmm. detail Mm -hmm. same with her falling out of the window yeah i think they probably pick and chose where to keep things so they could keep certain story points instead of making things more gratuitous visually because they knew that they were bending but they didn't really need to go into depth on that either. But I feel oh, like with with McGavin's demise, it felt like that was way a little too rushed. Because at, when I was rewatching it, you feel like you almost forget about it at some point when it should really be this looming issue. Because they are looking for Frankie. They think he's the one that may have done it. You know, mm-hmm. he had the scuffle with him in the in the apartment mm-hmm. earlier. Um. But yeah, you kind of forget that Eleanor Parker's character was responsible for it briefly. Would have been better to see more of that. Other than the point when, you know, he tells her that they don't think it was him that did it. You know, I didn't do it. And she goes, well, who do they think it was? <laughs> you know, like she's trying to see if she starts clutching the whistle. You know? Yeah, that was great. The fact that she had that whistle the whole time and she's walking around and you, you've been found out. Like but look on her face cool. when he charges through that door is oh, so many good book. performances in this movie. Darren McGavin yeah. was great in this movie. Or I don't think I've ever seen Amazing. anything bad that yeah. he ever did. He's just great all the time. But oh my god, he's yeah. so threatening. Yeah. So just immediately threatening. You don't even have to know who he is. You just look, take one look at him in this movie. And you know that's our bad guy. Well, he's taunting that yeah. local alcoholic oh, in that terrible sequence. <laughs> you know he's a jerk. You know. But he's also very charismatic, mm-hmm. and at moments you think he could be Frankie's friend. Mm-hmm. You know, when he's trying to tell his boss, "I hey, back off of him, all right? You had him during his good years, and you know, and uh, it's all a charade, really." Oh. But it's it's a nice little moment. Was it immediately obvious to both of you that what a bad idea it was for Frankie to come back because he immediately falls in with all the same people he knew while he was an addict? Everybody he talks to knows exactly what he's just been through it's like he's putting himself right back in that same environment it's inevitable right that's why you can't truly root for him because you know he came from that and he's going right back which happens all the time but also too like i love when people are like we'll just get out of that toxic environment and it's like but not everybody has somewhere new they can just up and move to it's like he had no other options mm. but to go back to this because he spent six months in jail. So he clearly isn't going to have probably the money or anything to just leave. Yeah. I'm sure it would have been nice to just get out if he could have. It's an important point in the movie. 
the fact that this had to be one of the first movies to even bring this up is kind of sad. But you have this atmosphere that was pervasive from the beginning of the code on where, and Katie, maybe you remember this term, glorification. Mm -hmm. To simply mention something is to glorify. This was huge. If you're in the Bible Bill, you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> oh, yeah. Why are you glorifying to, that? And it's like, I'm, I'm not. We had the same like, problem with last weekend. We can't even talk about alcoholism and how to deal with it because to speak the word is to manifest it and give it glory, which is ridiculous. But this was the no, This was the idea. Okay. And it's it hangs on even now. Yeah. Or no, we have to show this movie. We have to make this movie if we're ever going to have an honest discussion about the very real problem of veterans coming back from World War II addicted to things you've probably never even heard of. We're never going to be able to handle that unless we have this discussion. That's what Man with a Golden Arm was. Yeah. I think in the book they mention he's a veteran. They don't say it in the movie. I believe in the yeah. book he's a... No, I don't remember. I don't remember yeah. if he's a... I think he, in the book he's a World War II veteran. Well, the book, that would make sense. The book was published in 49. Yeah. There was uh, something that was interesting, and I don't know the state of this patient or not, but in prepping for this, uh, Sinatra was given access to, I believe it was a psychiatric yep. ward or something to that effect, where he got to witness an addict going cold turkey in a padded cell. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. In preparation for his performance, obviously. And he said it was one of the most revolting scenarios Ever, and he had to turn away he couldn't continue to watch it because he it was almost inconceivable that another human being could be going through this mm. that's where he got his motivation for that scene of course yeah. we talk about what a a wild turn this was for sinatra he was supposedly his career was over and done with by 1952 or so you know his whole style of singing had gone out of favor because elvis had come around and all the papers said, well, it was a nice ride, Frankie, but it's over. He set up shop in Vegas. And then 1953, he's back. His movie career goes into total blast-off mode after that. Well, the, the, the films he had done in the 40s and early 50s, they're fun, but they're not... They're not... Uh, they were song and dance movies. No, they're not acting spectacles, right. like From Here to Eternity mm -hmm. or, or this, which to me is my favorite of his performances. That's my favorite Preminger film as well, I think. I mean, this 1955 was a big year for him. Not only was there this, there was the film version of Guys and Dolls, mm. where, by all accounts, he shouldn't have been Nathan Detroit. He should have been Sky Masterson, which is one that was the character he wanted to do. But, of course, they were insistent on Brando doing it. And um, Sinatra had already been doing the number Luck Be a Lady, in his live show oh, yeah. for years up to that point. And he's the, the pinnacle version of that song, by the way, it's ironic that he doesn't perform it in the film and you've got Brando's, we'll call it interpretation <laughs> of singing, uh, as a, as a, not as suitable as a replacement, but, um, but yeah, this year, and he also did the tender trap the same year, which is more in league with his other mm -hmm. type films. He was totally committed. This reminded me when I was watching it, I used to work with this guy like 20 years ago and we would talk about older films and whatnot. And he was not a fan of Sinatra as an actor. 
because he felt that he didn't earn his place. Mm. You know, there's always rumors that he had mob ties and all that, and maybe he got forced in it, which is bullshit. He wasn't forced into the industry. No. I mean, that was a thing that they would do with, like, singers and later, of course, Elvis or anything. They just put him in the spotlight because they were the well, thing. Because they'll sell, too. I think we talked about right. this on um, the car wash episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you yeah, can there's... use musicians to push sales. Right. Um, but there's no better proof. And I would always argue this with him because he was, he was in his probably, I want to say late sixties. So he had a different perception of it, but I would always argue the man with the golden Uh arm. If you want to see Sinatra earn his place in movie history, look no further. I mean, yeah, he won the Oscar from here to eternity, but this is like, this is all in and also with guys and dolls, I mean, he criticized Brando's performance because he was. It was interesting how he was more in tune with doing the film than Brando was, who was an actor, and that's all he was. But that's that's how committed he was. He was. To what he, he was, was definitely doing. taking a chance with his career to make this movie. This was against his. Well, image. you said that he kind of his career had kind of come to a standstill. How did you word it? I don't. It was, de- it was declared dead. So maybe it was easier for him to do a role like this because he knew he didn't have anything necessarily on the line. Nothing left to lose. Maybe. He could have just slummed it around in Vegas. Now I want to say slumming around in Vegas. He he could have just done that for the rest of his career and probably been just fine. But it's admirable that he was as committed Uh to work in film. Yeah, this shows that. Yeah, leading up to films like Manchurian Candidate, you know, and just really important cinema that he was always a part of and this is interesting Mm. to look back on this and you know some people may only know him for his musical career and it's you you couldn't have had two more perfect parallel careers if you think Mm. about it Mm-hmm. And what Sinatra went through. Oh, and in case any listeners are not familiar with Marlon Brando, he is not known for his musical career. No. <laughs> not Definitely to speak of. No. There are reasons. <laughs> now, Man with a Golden Arm was certainly not the first, second, or last gunshot fired at film censorship and the production code. And it wasn't the last, but it was one of the ones that definitely was pushing it into its grave. Really, the big one would have been a foreign film, L'Amour, February 1951. The New York State Board of Regents had declared that this Italian movie called L'Amour was sacrilegious and forbid it to be screened by the state. Now, this movie was distributed by Joseph Burston Incorporated in the U.S., and it's an anthology movie, uh, part of which is called The Miracle. Now, this part involves a guy named St. Joseph, who impregnates a woman called Nani, who then believes herself to be the Virgin Mary, is directed by uh, Roberto Russolini, and stars no less than Federico Fellini himself. Burston argued that the injunction was not only a violation of their free speech, but because they had declared it religious, sacrilegious, this is where they screwed up, it was also a violation of free exercise of religion. This got appealed all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court in 1952. The court agreed with Bernston. And said that, yeah, you're right. And with that, movies had First Amendment protections again under the U.S. Constitution. And the state censorship boards were starting to crumble. It took them a while, but a lot of them shut down within the next 10 years. Except for Maryland. 
God damn it, so Maryland. They were under continuous pressure to outdo TV and compete against foreign films which were exempt from the code. You can thank Mr. Roger Corman for importing a whole bunch of those into the U.S. and making this happen. Thanks, Rog. You know, they just could not keep this code relevant anymore, and eventually it just died. And like I said, Man with the Golden Arm was a big part of that. And it led to larger conversations, we think, about, you know, drug addiction that may not mm-hmm. have happened otherwise. I don't know how long it would have taken for somebody to make a movie like this had Preminger not done it. Yeah, because when I always compare it to The Long Weekend, which was 10 years previous, and I think it tackles it as strongly as Man with the Golden mm. Arm does, but for alcoholism, you know? Should I uh, put that Definitely. one on my list? It's it's a must-see for sure. Well, I really like, um, this is going to sound weird, and I really don't have any other way to say it, but I like movies that um, tackle addiction. Because, like, I love Requiem for a Dream. I love Train Spotting, mm-hmm. Enter the Void. Like, I like those films that show the lowest possible low and hopefully getting a chance to come back from that. I like those types of films. So that's why I was really surprised to see that this did tackle addiction and all. They so. could have gone. They could have gone yeah. further. If you want to see like the grandparents of that type of subgenre, then yes, mm-hmm. definitely. Incidentally, on a Another historical footnote, we mentioned earlier the Mutual Film Corporation that started this whole thing back in 1915. They produced a whole bunch of Charlie Chapman movies until 1916, and then Chaplin left to form United Artists with Mary Pickford, D.W. Griffith, and Fairbanks, which, which is the company that released Man the Golden Arm. Yeah. They were risk takers as a, as a company always. If you look at some of the more... Oh, it's in their DNA, Yeah. Yeah. Like they would pick up the, and they weren't like United Artist Productions necessarily. They were like they would pick up films for distribution. Mm-hmm. Like I don't think this film was was a, a seeded production at UA. No, they took it, and they no longer retain the rights. They, to they it championed anyway. it, but, and got it into theaters. Yep. The only thing Preminger had to say, I think, was you have to keep the Saul Bass poster. If you don't keep his poster, I'm not, I won't let you distribute this movie. <laughs> yeah. But it shows where his loyalties lie. Right. I still don't know how, I don't know the trajectory of his career. So I don't know by him doing the poster for this film, if it was early on in his career or if it was midpoint, Mm. like by him saying, we have to keep this poster, it could have been what projected him forward. Because if this timeline was on Saul Bass at this point, he was established for certain, but. I think he was, I may be wrong, but he may have been associated with Preminger prior to Hitchcock, but I'm not certain. I'm not either. But, uh, I mean, he was also, you know, he had other things going on, too. It wasn't just title design sequences and Mm -hmm. films or poster designs or anything like that. I mean, he he directed sequences and films Mm -hmm. as well. Um, And then Phase 4. Yes. Yes. The famed Phase 4, which, if you like Ants... That's your movie. It's crazy, though, because you watch that movie and you go, what? <laughs> like, it, to come from that same person, it's just such a left turn yeah. that you wouldn't expect. But it's it's a great movie unto itself. It's, it's totally different than anything else. Also, can we talk about, when you mentioned it, you, you teased it on one of the Instagram lives, and I, I guessed what, because you weren't going to release what titles you've been thinking of for this season. Yeah. But I kind of guessed accidentally this was one of the movies. Yeah. And I don't remember what it was that you said, but I was like, yep. 
I think all I and you were like, I think all I said was Preminger. I'm pretty sure I made that. That may be the only word I dropped, and this was the first thing that came to mind. You didn't go with Exodus or Carmen Jones. You went straight. Ah, must be that. I I was. That's what I was thinking. Carmen Jones. Advising consent. What I was Ah. The music Uh, in this was phenomenal. Oh yeah. So okay, Katie. I don't know if you're I'm not going to know anything. <laughs> well, I mean, you might be familiar. You're, I know you're familiar with Elmer Bernstein because he scored one of your all-time favorite films in 1981. I have a favorite film in fact, in we've covered it on an episode. Oh, don't look it up. oh. Also, I need to know if that soundtrack is on vinyl. Because like The you movie said, that we you, you're thinking yeah, about, if that soundtrack is available? Yeah. It's not. Damn. It's not officially available. Damn. If that's the movie that you're movie thinking so of that much. I know. Well, if we covered it on episode one, I clearly know it's Wolfen. No, I'm just kidding. Um. <laughs> Which is, ironically, that is one of her favorites. Hey. So the guy, the person who did the score for Man with the Golden Arm also did American Werewolf in London? Yep. He also did Ghostbusters. Yep. Huh. Ray Parker Jr. He also did, did The Magnificent Seven. I mean, that's that's what's so crazy. He told Preminger his idea, and he goes, because he knew Preminger may not be on board with mm-hmm. this. He's like, since Frankie wants to become a drummer, he wants to live in that jazz lifestyle, that's what I envision the score to be. And he was like, you know, thinking he's going to be makes like, sense? get out of here. That's not where... <laughs> Nothing else makes sense. Yeah. But that's what it is. It's the fantasy element. And it carries the whole film, because that's like almost... That's what he aspires to live, that lifestyle. So it totally works. And it's mm-hmm. probably one of the most brilliant film scores oh. ever. And it's completely underrated. Oh, it's, it's phenomenal. That was like one the of the film first scores things. he knows of. Yeah. I mean, where he's known by, that one always gets forgotten, it seems. And so did has Man with the Golden Arm had an official big time release? I think you said it was on Criterion. It's not. I thought it was, but no. it's, it's not. Uh, the most official version is Warner Home Video. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a Blu-ray of it. So there was always, there's an import Blu-ray. I think it's Network that puts it out. But the film is weird. Like it's maybe well, it fell into the public domain for the longest time. The reason time. I ask, and, the, well, the reason I'm asking is because of the Manchurian Candidate. Because that thing, I believe, was owned by Sinatra's estate. And he just didn't ever re-release it like it was on tv one time in like 1968 or something and then he just left it in a vault and wouldn't do anything with it well people would ask him about it and sinatra would be like oh i just forgot like okay (laughs) it wasn't until after he died i think that it got an actual home video release or let me talk it had been out on vhs in the late 80s i believe but yeah it was one that sat around for a while and it became like and then when it when it re-released, I believe it was given a PG-13 as a rating. Hmm. Like, it actually was in theaters again. Oh, wow. Kind of like The Birds in the 80s, where that was granted a PG-13. Granted. It never was rated before, you know? But, yeah, the, this movie, this particular film, because it was United Artists, they didn't own it. They just distributed mm-hmm. it theatrically. The rights have always been weird. And then, and like, I think it was, like, late 80s. It was Preminger's estate, basically honed in on the rights and there's still like illegitimate copies out there you know floating around even on dvd i think i have one of them yeah, yeah. but it wasn't until uh mid 90s i believe it was 1994 when you not when uh warner home video released it on vhs 
and that was the best print available. And their version is in has been released, I think, ten years later on DVD, and it's still the go-to version. Yeah, I'm pretty sure mine um, is a bootleg. It has a watermark in one corner, and all of the sound is on the right stereo channel only. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> okay, it might be. Well, these are the this this is the Warner release that was a part of like one of three Sinatra box sets that they mm. put out back in like 2005. And then this is good. It's only got the trailer on there and a little making of featurette. But I also have the one by Sinatra's estate, the 50th anniversary. Mm. That's got some cool little interviews and it's got a film historian commentary track that's pretty interesting. But I also have a CatCom version, which is abysmal, abysmal. but I love CatCom. You don't have the Viewmaster? No, they didn't. They didn't do it. That would be cool to see this in 3D, though. We need to get on that and put out our own bootleg Viewmaster editions of some of these movies. Yeah. Give Nathan a do-it-yourself thing. The thing is, is it would sell. I know. Do it. Be great. (laughs) Seriously, I would. I mean, I I made all those fantasy Mm -hmm. covers of Viewmasters on my blog years ago and they were always viewmaster reels that were never made but I, you know blackie manuel come on i want that criterion still has yeah. not accepted the cover i made for them for gone with the pope by the way that's their loss i wouldn't be surprised if they pick this movie up at some point if uh, warner doesn't do something with it and they may license it out to somebody somebody like should them, you yeah know. you why don't you do it nathan interesting I don't know enough tidbits on it. I just have an overall love for it. And I was telling him earlier that it's kind of like comfort food. Like I I just have this on in the background because this is a movie. You could just listen to this movie and it's amazing. Oh yeah. Like, you know, and I feel the same way toward lost weekend. That's comfort food. It's like, yeah, it's (laughs) seeing uh, Ray Milland stumbling down the you know, sidewalk with fits his, over alcohols got his typewriter under his arm looking for a pawn shop that'll take it from him so he can buy just one more bottle oh it's so sad i, I don't know i just something maybe something absurd about me oh. but i just didn't i don't know i just feel these are like feel-good movies when they shouldn't well, be i mean lost weekend of between these no, two I get it. I mean, man with a golden arm and lost weekend lost weekend's the only one that had scenes from it cut into dead men don't wear plaid I think Maybe. it's interesting what we sometimes pick as comfort films because it's like sometimes they really shouldn't mm. be at all. Because like I one of my go to's is funny games. That's an odd pick. Or yeah. Clockwork Orange. That's <laughs> which should not no. be comfort <laughs> films, but Well Clockwork tonally I can totally get that. How? Well, it's a beautiful film. And, oh, it is. And the, yeah. And the, and the sound Another design great and score, the score yeah. and everything. <laughs> Wendy Carlos's score is amazing. And plus you get this rousing rendition of Singing in the Rain. I love that movie. Only almost as good as Gene Kelly's version. Mm. You it's know? a close second. So Marlon Brando's version would be third. I totally yeah. get that. Did he do it? <laughs> no. He did not do it. <laughs> it was, his, Brando's version was cut from Apocalypse Now when the rain comes at the end and yeah oh, I bet, yeah but there is one thing i wanted to you mentioned brando again the opening sequence of this film man with a golden arm reminds me of the set design of 
guys and dolls like yeah. how you it very much feels like, like a, a set, set definitely yeah mm-hmm. a soundstage but this is like the rundown and it's in black and white it's kind of the the dirty grimy oh. version but you see like all the shots oh, and everything that, and it kind of reminds me of it's guys that and fantastic dolls. continuous crane shot from when we follow the bus up to where it parks and frankie gets out and then we follow him down the sidewalk for the longest time Preminger loved to move the camera yeah. around. You see this in all of his movies. He's just masterful at it. And when I saw Eleanor Parker listed in the credits, I expected she would be the bus driver, <laughs> actually, in that scene. Because when they when they go to park... Bebe, bebe, that Parker. Anyway, um... <laughs> so any final thoughts on Man with a Golden Arm? You... It's definitely worth checking out if you have any interest in film history, uh, if you have any interest in Preminger, Frank Sinatra, Arnold Stang. Absolutely. If you love Hercules Goes to New York, I think you should check out some of Stang's earlier works like this film. Or if you remember his, vo- if you remember his voice from Courage the Cowardly Dog and want to go back and check out. Hello, Courage the Cowardly Dog. So- As I was watching it, I definitely went, I can't wait to know how or why this was chosen and i have absolutely loved the conversation surrounding this because just randomly watching it you don't know about why it was impactful or why it was important and it's well it's, we don't think about it now because it makes it even a we're better used film. To seeing movies just go to all these places in Show a way anything. that they just could not mm-hmm. do then unless you were Right. A Preminger who just did not care what anybody else thought. This is what I'm doing. That's why I think a movie like this is, I still think it's underrated. Hmm. And maybe that has to do with the distribution element. Like if it had always been a studio picture, it'd be out there prominently. But um, it's like this nugget that people discover. Mm-hmm. And in, in whether it's a Preminger nugget or Sinatra or even Elmer Bernstein's score is un appreciated i think or underappreciated um yeah it's amazing and this is like early novak as Mm -hmm. well kim novak later would do vertigo another saul bass uh poster design there and title sequence by the Mm -hmm. way and she's amazing in that but this is like you could i could totally see where he would fall for her in this film like she's she's that thing you aspire to right i mean that aside from his career that he wants he wants that perfect life and i think maybe deep down she might be the reason he goes back home like if he can make life with mm-hmm. her he can have his dreams but ultimately it wasn't going to happen although they they are you know walking off in the sunset in a sense at the end but it's but nathan he's taken it all with him cause of some because the monkey never dies. The monkey never dies. And you know the it. The monkey's never dead, dealer. The monkey never dies. And with that... One of the best lines. Draw ever. this to a close. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to yet another exciting episode. The Smooth Thrills Radio Hour is a production of Ghostcraft and is recorded live in Dallas, Texas. 
Please email your questions and comments to autopilot at smooththrillsradiohour.com or drop us a message on Instagram. Enjoy the rest of your day. This has been a Ghostcraft presentation.